Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Um, thanks to all of you for coming out, and thanks especially to our panelists for being here. Um, reproductive justice is certainly an issue that we've taken up here at the center in the past, but we hope that tonight's panel will spark some new conversation and broaden the ways in which we think about the connections between childbirth, women's health, human rights, and social justice. I personally became interested in doula work several years ago. It seemed to me that doulas, as trained professional sources of physical, emotional, and informational support, were uniquely able to empower women and help them make informed choices about their care. Choice, of course, is a word that has long been central to the discussion about reproductive rights, specifically abortion, but it hasn't figured as prominently into the ways that we talk about birth. Our panelists tonight are committed to providing support through the entire spectrum of reproductive health choices, from abortion to childbirth to parenting. The work that they do truly bridges the gap between the pro-choice and the birthing movements and is also cognizant of the ways that institutional barriers, such as racism and poverty, can also limit women's ability to make these choices. I'm going to introduce our four panelists now and they'll each speak for about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and then there will be some conversation among them and there will also be an opportunity at the end for your questions from the audience. Um, so our first speaker tonight is Aisha Domingue. Um, she's originally from New Orleans, Louisiana and graduated from Smith College in 2002 with a double major in African American and Women's Studies. Aisha has extensive experience working with youth, most recently as the co-director of programs at Sadie Nash Leadership Project. She is currently the doula coordinator at the Brooklyn Young Mothers Collective and is pursuing her certification as a birth doula with Donut International. Um, next up, Mary Mahoney is a donor-trained birth doula and co-founder and co-coordinator of the Doula Project. She has served as a doula for more than 100 people across the spectrum of pregnancy and trained fellow doulas and activists on the abortion doula model of care. As a doula, Mary works to implement essential components of empowerment into healthcare, including community, self-determination, and access. Lauren Mitchell has worked extensively in the field of women's health over the last five years. Besides being the co-director and one of the founders of the Doula Project, she is an abortion health educator at Bellevue Hospital and a gynecological teaching associate and a writer. And last but not least, Miriam Perez is a 25-year-old writer, blogger, and doula living in Washington, D.C. She's been working in the reproductive justice movement for over five years, both online and off, including three years working with the National Latina Health Institute for Reproductive Health. She is the founder and sole blogger at RadicalDoula.com, a blog that covers the intersections of birth activism and social justice from a doula's perspective. Miriam is also an editor at Feministing.com. Her writing has appeared in Bitch Magazine, The Nation, RH Reality Check, Alternet, The American Prospect, and various anthologies. Um, so without further ado, our first speaker, Aisha Domingue. Hello, everyone. Um, as Lucy said, my name's Aisha, um, and I am the doula coordinator at Brooklyn Young Mothers Collective. Um, I actually started there in November. So when Lucy contacted me, I was like, great, by March I'll have something to say <laughs> about the work that we do. Um, and I'll start off just by giving you um, some understanding of what the Brooklyn Young Mothers Collective is and the work that we do, and then um, kind of tease out some of the connections between that and reproductive justice. Um, 
So Brooklyn Young Mothers Collective was founded um, about five years ago by Benita Miller, um, who was a lawyer who worked with legal aid and spent a lot of time in family court. Um, and in family court, she had a lot of experiences with seeing um, different young women, primarily teenagers, but also some young women, you know, who were 19, 20, 21, in their early 20s, um, just coming in and out of family court uh, for various reasons, whether there are case, open cases with ACS, um, which is the kind of child protective agency, um, or issues with custody with the fathers of their children and so forth. Um, and she perceived a, a real lack of access to resources other than these sorts of penal systems. Um, where young mothers were basically sent through systems all the time, but not actually given any support to stabilize the different um, situations that they were facing. So she started out in the what was then called the P schools or the pregnancy schools. They weren't really schools. They were programs um, that didn't really give you a diploma. They gave you a certificate. Um, that basically, so these were programs that were very well funded, that did very little. Um, <laughs> young women were pushed generally pushed out of their regular high schools into these programs um, and given a extremely less than adequate education. Um, so they were doing like fourth grade level volcano experiments in their science classes or being given parenting classes instead of math classes. Um, so after also observing that kind of situation, she spent a lot of time in the peace schools running programs. Um, like workshops, just that specifically address the needs of the young women. And, um, you know, the Peace Schools took note, like, wow, they don't come to school unless you're here. Um, <laughs> what's that about? And then there were lots of problems with, you know, if a young woman's child was sick, for instance, they couldn't come to school, they needed to care for their child. The school would, you know, a truancy officer would show up at their house, like, I'm gonna call in a report to ACS if you don't come to school. So there are a lot of instances of systems that weren't recognizing the needs of the young women, but really seeking to punish them. Um, so Benita started Brooklyn Young Mothers Collective and placed um, a premium on educational advocacy. One large part of that was getting the peace school shut down um, and making, Lots of, um, lots of resources available to the Board of Ed and to principals in different high schools um, so they could be compliant with Title IX and understand. It's actually illegal to say, oh, you're eight months pregnant. You can't be going up these stairs. Don't come back to school. Um, so <laughs> that's still a lot of the issue that we deal with today at BYMC. Um, we spend a lot of time doing educational advocacy for the young women with their schools to get them back into school, whether they're they've been forced out of school or they themselves decided to stop going to school because we see education as a very strong indicator of future success for them and for their families. So um, that's one piece of the work that we do. We also provide legal support. Um, we provide just general access and referrals to different resources. And my particular work as a doula coordinator um, right now is to set up um, and get off the ground our community-based doula program. Um, we're based on a model from an organization in Chicago that used to be called Chicago Health Connect and is now called Health Connect One, which basically um, is a little different than a DONA model of doula support. Um, DONA stands for Doulas of North America. And typically, you know, um, in that model, the way that we're trained, because I went through a DONA training, um, you 
meet with a woman probably, you know, after around six months or so. You spend, you meet with them a few times, them, their partner, them, their family, whoever's gonna be at the birth. Um, you're at the birth and the labor, and you provide breastfeeding support, and that's kind of a wrap. But for the young women that we work with, there's really not enough sustained support. It really doesn't help them make any trend, any real kind of transition from pregnant teen to teen mother. And I also want to talk about some of the language because we specifically don't say we work with teen pregnancy and teen mothers because um, that's really kind of a boogeyman and a scapegoat for a lot of people. Oh my God, teen, teen pregnancy. How do you prevent teen pregnancy? We really focus on the language of disadvantaged young motherhood because when you start speaking in that way, you have to then look at how other people are actually accountable, how other systems and institutions are accountable to the young women, regardless of their status as a pregnant person or as a mother. So the work that I do basically um, starts whenever the young woman comes in, she gets an internal referral to me, whatever, if she's pregnant, because um, we also work with parents and young women. Um, and so I start meeting with them probably every, every week, every couple weeks, I go to prenatal appointments with them. We talk about um, extensively what labor and birth are like. We watch videos, we have discussions. Um, we're setting up a group so, because now there's kind of a flow to how many um, participants or members are pregnant at any given time. I think a couple weeks ago, I was like, wow, no one's pregnant. And today I was like, wow, we have eight pregnant girls. So <laughs> it really, um, provides a basis for not only just one-on-one -on -one support with me, but also um, an ability to create uh, peer relationships because you know something that is important in the transition from pregnancy to motherhood is developing a community of support. So we really, I really work to try to facilitate that. Um, I attend labors and births with the young women. I help them figure out the breastfeeding stuff. I do home visits with them um, afterwards. And my other main role is to loop them back into the program and get them reconnected to education because it's um, kind of easy for schools particularly to allow young women to just fall out off the radar not come back to school um, and then get encouraged to, well, you can get your GED. But that, you know, then that's a very short-term fix that doesn't look at the long term. Well, if you have your GED, how easy is it then to get access to a four-year college and, you know, continue on with your success? Um, so that's kind of some of the work I do in a nutshell. Um, one of the pieces that we look at a lot when thinking about, um, or that I've particularly become interested in in the few months that I've been at BYMC, um, is the connect, kind of the disconnect between reproductive justice movements and reproductive rights movements, where it falls into statistical issues for um, particularly communities of color or black communities. If you look at the issues of infant mortality, for example, I'll start there. Um, there's a huge, uh, disparity in the levels of infant mortality in black communities versus other communities. So one of the big pushes by the Office of Minority Health in the government um, is to talk about preconception health as a means to impact infant mortality later in life for black women. But a lot of the issues, um, the issue of preconception health is often, and by that I mean looking at what your health is like before you conceive you know, and, and go on to um, have a pregnancy if you decide to continue on with the pregnancy. So that means, what's your health like? Are you diabetic? Are you dealing with hypertension? Do you have heart disease? Like all the different 
um, general ills that plague the black community in terms of health disparities. Um, so when you look at those sorts of issues as they are connected to infant mortality in black communities later on, and you talk about preconception health and how can we view ourselves whether we're having babies or not as being preconception and dealing with these issues because we're concerned about the future health outcomes of our community. When you look at those things and you look at traditional kind of language in the reproductive rights movement, there is sometimes a big disconnect because preconception health is also kind of one of those fancy, sexy things that the right uses to talk about, well, <laughs> young people should focus on preconception health and see themselves as preconception because we don't want them to have, you know, unprotected sex, we don't want them to have abortions, blah, 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 blah. So the language gets muddled there when you talk about that sort of thing. But when you look at a reproductive justice framework which tries to address things other than simply choice for the reproductive life of a woman or a person, um, it's really important to black communities to talk about uh, preconception health <laughs> in terms of their reproductive life because it is a big issue in the black community. It is something that we have to address. So the reproductive justice model sees the issues of economics, the issues of racial disparities, the issues of access to education, all those sorts of things as something that are not on the side or, yeah, they're sort of connected to your reproductive health, but you know, it's really connected. It really actually does matter. Um, and that's kind of the place where <laughs> we arrive at a struggle when talking about doing coalition building or all those sorts of things because the, the issues and the things that we need to focus on with the young women that we work with are not sexy. They're the boogeyman. <laughs> they're the thing that people want to keep away from. Pregnant teenagers and teenagers with babies, especially if they're black and brown. Um, but it's something that really needs to be addressed. Um, so I guess I'll stop there and pass it on. Awesome. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so Lauren and I are going to sort of share the mic since we are both with the Doula Project. Um, and therefore more or less share ahead. Um, <laughs> So just to kind of briefly go over kind of why we're here doing what we're doing, I just wanted to talk a little bit about our mission. So the Doula Project started in about 2007, and we started um, to basically expand the model of doula care, which provides non-judgmental physical and emotional support, typically associated with labor and delivery. We wanted to expand that outward so that it also includes abortion, miscarriage, stillbirth, induction, everything that runs the gamut of reproductive health care. So, um, and I sort of fear to say this because we've gotten press and I keep hearing the same sound bite, but I do maintain um, to, and Miriam was there and Mary was there and we had this really great meeting, but um, we all sort of said, you know, this is really intuitive and why is this such a big gaping hole in the face of reproductive health care, right? Why shouldn't there just be emotional support? So our mission is basically not only to expand the model of doula care, but also to kind of look into different ways of community building um, for doulas, for clients, just in general to kind of um, work in new ways to support each other and support each other through our reproductive decisions. On that note, um, we are 25 volunteers um, who make up the doula project. Lauren and I coordinate. We're starting a a leadership circle to start getting more of our doulas um, important voices out into public spaces. Um, 
We run our own trainings. Um, we've created an abortion doula model training. It's, um, it, it's basically comprised of the what we see as sort of the three main components of doula care, which is physical, informational, and emotional support. And so our trainings are sort of laid out using those, those sort of broad categories. And we're also starting um, to work nationally, which is really exciting. Um, we are helping um, groups around the country start their own abortion doula services. And it's all very grassroots. We're not doing an affiliate model. Um, we're just sort of supporting them and getting started, sharing um, best practices, things like that. Um, and I can I'm gonna talk more about that later. Um, locally, we partner with a public hospital to provide abortion doula services. Um, we use a partnership model um, because it's hard to get into the clinics. You, I would, I would love it for there to be a point where you, we can train anyone in this room to be an abortion doula and then you can go with someone to an abortion and the clinics will be like, yeah, come on in. Um, it doesn't really work that way. And so um, by, you know, there's, there's good, really good pieces of doing a partnership model. You build a really intimate relationship with the clinic and then you also support the clinic. And so that's really important to us. A lot of clinics have to deal with sort of the political aspects of the work. They're understaffed, under-resourced, and so we love that we can support them as well in supporting the women. Um, and just to sort of jump in on that note, part of the reason why we emphasize the partnership model is just because of the communities that we're working with, people who are getting abortions, people who are birth mothers pursuing an adoption plan, people who are maybe pregnant and happy to have a baby but really kind of wary of the pregnancy and scared about it. It takes a lot of empowerment to say, I want a doula, um, even under the best of circumstances, and especially if it's maybe something more taboo like an abortion or like adoption. Our goal is to make um, our service as accessible as possible to as many people as who want it. So that's a really great benefit of the partnership model because we're just there. So we've served, um, at Bellevue now, we've served nearly 1,000 women since um, 2008, about, about 18 months. It's, it's awesome, we're really excited. We just got our new numbers in and we were like, wow. Um, so it's great and you know, with, especially with abortion, you don't have a lot of time to find a doula. Like you don't have a lot of time to do anything. Um, and so to just have someone um, right there with you um, is working out really well, um, at least you know, in this hospital, in this community that we work in. Um, as Lauren mentioned, we also work with um, a pro-choice adoption agency, Spence Chapin, which some of you may have heard of. They're amazing. They're very pro-birth mother. Um, they have something like seven out of ten of the women that they work with end up um, choosing to parent, which is, which is kind of like unheard of, I think, as far as like adoption agencies go, because they provide really great resources um, to the women who come to them. And so, um, the sort of third component of our care is we work on a case-by-case -case basis with um, lower income individuals who can't afford doula care. Um, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a lot of um, doula collectives in the city that really provide free services um, for women seeking doula care. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm, I'm Oh, at a hospital? Yeah, some ho some hospitals do. And I know um, Lutheran in Brooklyn is trying to get something started, too. And Bellevue, where we are, used to have a birth doula program, which probably some of you have heard about. And they were, like, kicked out. And then the birthing center shut down. And so 
There's, so there's basically not a lot of people yeah. who provide services for... There are a lot of hospital-based doula programs, or I mean, it, the way that hospital-based doula programs kind of come and go is kind of interesting. So a lot of, it tends to come in waves, which is great. I mean, it's great that they exist at all, and I encourage any of you, if you're interested in becoming birth doulas, to look into these resources, because that's where you get a lot of great experience. Um, the nice thing about the service that we provide is that we do meet the clients beforehand, usually, with some very notable exceptions, of course. Um, but we typically meet the clients beforehand, and it's really nice to kind of have the rapport with somebody and to let them know, you know, I am here for you, and let's make a birth plan. So um, I think maybe what we're most known for right now is our abortion service, the abortion doula service. We work at Bellevue Hospital, um, which is one of those, it's an interesting place to work in a big public hospital like that because um, a, lot of, a lot of people simply don't know that we're there, um, that there's an abortion service performed at Bellevue. And it actually is a really great, solid service. Um, Bellevue is kind of an interesting place because, you know, if you are pursuing an abortion and you have any medical issues, Planned Parenthood, Park Med, the typical freestanding clinics will not touch you because it's a liability for them. So they're very wary of taking on people who are anemic, people who have weird bleeding issues, weird asthma issues, you know, or even people who've had C-sections, they'll refer to Bellevue. So Bellevue tends to get a lot of people who have sort of been kind of running through the system and are a little bit worn out. So we tend to see a lot of patients who um, have complex medical histories, for lack of a better term, um, maybe complex health insurance situations. You know, it's one thing to know it's one thing to have resources, it's another thing to know. Pardon the sniffles, I'm battling a cold right now, so I'm trying to like not choke while I'm speaking. Um, so, you know, it's one thing to have resources, it's another thing to know that they're there, right? And a lot of people panic and they don't necessarily, like I've seen cases where people have come in and tried to use their sister's Medicaid and then realized that the last minute that if they got caught, things would be really bad, things like that. Um, so that said, by the time they get to Bellevue, a lot of them are really worn out. They're really, you know, kind of, kind of like wishing that it would just be done. And then you come to Bellevue, and Bellevue is this big bureaucratic monster where they then have to deal with a million different appointments, and nothing is streamlined. So one really great way that we can kind of soothe that blow is by having doulas there, and it really does make a big difference. You know, we've. Um, like Mary said, we worked with we've worked with probably about a thousand women at this point. Um, and we've not, we work with an opt-out model, which means that the doulas are there and that the patients can decline if they don't want one. And we've not had a single person opt out yet, which to me is a huge success. Um, and even if we are sort of absorbed into the typical hospital staff, it's really great to see that, you know, in this situation, in this moment, our clients feel cared for. They feel like they have somebody to turn to. You know, um, our biggest successes, I think, are not necessarily the ones or the clients who say to us, you know, thank you so much, I couldn't have done it, the ones who screamed and cried. Our biggest successes are the ones who stay quiet and say after, you know, it was like my family was here, thank you. You know, and to me, that those are the most profound moments of, you know, it's this quiet work and it's really important and really powerful. And we have a lot of really great people right now, a lot of really great doulas working with us. And we're really exciting to see how our trainings kind of move and evolve as we sort of develop this abortion doula model of care a little bit further.
So to give you sort of an idea of what um, maybe a day in the life of an abortion doula is, um, we work um, with women having first and second trimester procedures. Um, at our clinic, they're, they're awake during the first trimester procedures and also during laminaria. Awake is sort of a funny word. It's yeah. uh, twilight sedation. So it's sort of like this catch-22 where some patients fall asleep, but some patients are just dizzy. It's, in theory, softens the blow. Yeah, and some patients are very much awake. So, it, mm -hmm. yeah, it just depends. So. We're there before, during, and after, um, very similar to um, you know the birth doula model. We sit with them in the waiting room. Sometimes um, some of the women are feeling crampy. Um, sometimes they are cold, so we get them a blanket. We get them hot water bottles. We give them massages. This is a really great pressure point, just FYI, if you're ever having cramps. Um, and you know lower back rubs, things like that. And we keep them company. Um, and then we're with them during during the procedure. And sometimes my favorite sort of doula trick is using the power of distraction, um, which you can do for short um, periods of time, not not so much with birth. Um. <laughs> but you know, for 15 minutes, you know, you you, you can try to engage them in a story. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes people aren't into it, and you just hold their hand or you wipe their tears, you rub their hair. Um, and one thing doulas really do is they facilitate um, communication between doctors and patients in these situations because pretty much across the board, and we try not to generalize with our patients because on the next day, like something will totally throw us off. But you know, a lot of people want to know like what's going on right now and when is it over. Most importantly, when is it over? How much longer do I have? And so, one of the things we do in our training, we do we do a clinical training as well as a classroom training with our doulas. And one of the things we do is we really get them to understand what the procedure is, to know the ins and outs of it, and to, to, to be able to tell the patient, like, you do only have two minutes, or they're putting in your IUD right now, or whatever. Or um, even just to figure out, you know, sometimes there's a long wait. When are they going to go in? You know, when are they going to be finished? Right. Um, and then after the procedure, um, you know, patients for second trimester, they tend to be very groggy, usually sleeping for a while. Um, and then with first trimester, we go in and we sit with them. We hang out. They're also usually pretty groggy. Um, and then a lot of times we'll go talk to their family or their partner or their sister in the waiting room and be like, you know, she's great. Everything's fine. Um, give them an update because family and friends aren't allowed back into any of the rooms. Right, and I think the role of the doula, especially in our case, but in all cases, is um, an informed ally. You know, it's somebody who's there to be with this client in a time of need, um, at a point where it's a very vulnerable situation and some women feel less vulnerable than others. But for the most part, you know, we're there to be with them to let them know, like Mary said, to let them know what's going on and to just keep them comfortable as best we can. Um, and so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the adoption work we do. Aisha did a very beautiful job of, I think, talking about birth with, um, you know, very, very disempowered people. A lot of the people that we work with, you know, this is not to say that everyone who chooses an adoption plan is disempowered, but we tend to work with the people who don't have support and who know very, very little about childbirth. Um, what they do know is what they don't want, though, and that's, that's very interesting, you know. They, they might have never heard of an epidural, they might have never heard of like, 
what is a birth plan, you know? But they know that they don't want a C-section, or they know that they do want a C-section, depending on the person. Um, and so we sort of help guide them through the process of creating the birth plan that's best for them. Um, we spend a lot of time with our, um, with our Spence Chapin moms. Um, we tend to develop probably, I don't know if too intimate, but we get, we get to know them very well. And we end up sometimes in these sort of hard situations with them. They, a lot of them deliver in public hospitals. They deliver at the hospital that's sort of across the street from them, or the one that's closest, the one that takes Medicaid. And often by the time we, we meet up with them, it's, it's a little too late for us to be like, well, why don't you go to this hospital instead? And so we kind of, you know, we work with what we have. Um, and we, when we started doing this work, we were kind of drawn to it because we heard stories um, of women choosing adoption who weren't allowed to breastfeed their babies, weren't allowed to room in with their babies um, because the hospital, the nurses knew about the adoption plan. Um, or alternatively, you know, we were, we were at a very long birth, our very first birth um, with Spence Chapin, and um, the, the mom didn't want to see the baby. She put a sheet over her face when she was delivering. And um, so it was, up, it was our job to be like, we have to get this baby out of the room immediately. And so these, you know, it, it's, it's very emotional on all counts. And I didn't know a lot about adoption before we started working there. And it, it's, it's definitely like a movement to get behind Spence Chapin. They're starting a pro-choice adoption movement. And I really suggest you check it out, get involved. It's really important work. I think it's also important to keep in mind that a lot of the you know, I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding adoption and why people go that route. Um, a lot of our clients actually, I mean, some, you know, we tend to not ask why are you choosing adoption because at the end of the day, right, that's not necessarily our business to know. Our business is to kind of help them through this situation. Um, but, you know, a lot of our clients, when they do kind of talk to us about it, you know, certainly considered abortion, some of whom considered abortion and realized that they were past the legal limit and that it wasn't an option anymore. Um, you know, but typically at that point, denial can run deep and you have a lot of work to do in very little time. So we're trying to kind of help them expedite the process. And like Mary said, we don't always have the option to say, are you sure you really want to go to the hospital that has the 50% C-section rate if you're scared of a C-section? But you know, you kind of make do with what you have and you help them out as best you can where they're at. Um, so. I don't really know how much time we have, but we're gonna wrap up and kind of tell you about our future plans. Um, as I was saying earlier, we're doing national work. It's really exciting. We've started a training and networking circle to connect all the different projects that are starting up together so that they can all provide each other support. Um, we have projects starting up um, in San Francisco, LA, Seattle, Olympia area. Lots of people in North Carolina randomly. Um, I'm excited because my mom lives there, so I'm like, yes, reasons to go there. Asheville, Greensboro, Fayetteville is, I'm like trying to connect them all. Um, and then Atlanta, Georgia. And so, um, so we're really happy. I think, you know, sort of on another level of like RJ, um, you know, it's about movement building and so, and access. And you know, you get access by creating, I think, powerful movements and getting like, communities to start doing this on their own terms 
in ways that best suit their community's needs. And so that's sort of the model that we're trying to promote. Um, as far as local work, uh, we're actively, I mean, we're always actively looking for new partnerships and clinics um, just to see, you know, where we can expand the model of care. And we're always kind of up for something new. Most recently, we've started um, providing a doula service for medical abortions, um, which is really great because that's one where, you know, it's sort of a really intense experience and it's nice to have a specialist sort of in the field to call on. Um, a lot of the clients have been really happy with that. They've been really happy to have, even if they don't call the doula to come over, just kind of have her there over the phone just to call at like five in the morning saying, is this okay? So, and we like that too, the Bellevue staff. Um, we're also speaking with a clinic, a, a clinic that um, works with teen mothers specifically at another New York City public hospital but to potentially do birth doula work with them. Um, and we're looking at other clinics to provide abortion doula work for. So we have a couple on the table, um, and hopefully in the next few months we'll really be expanding our service. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, I mean, on a personal note, it's really exciting to be on a panel with Mary and Lauren because they didn't tell like the sort of birth story of the doula project, but um, it was it was uh, started, the three of us were at a New York City Birth Coalition meeting in like, 2005, and I think, uh, I think both Lauren and I in our introduction sort of mentioned that we were doulas who wanted to do abortion doula work. And so then we're like, hey, we should talk. And then I think Mary and had I was just- like, hey, I know you guys. <laughs> and we knew each other from reproductive justice work professionally, and so um, I left kind of the project about a year after we had started conversations and we didn't we didn't have a clinic we really had nothing except a mission statement and you know sort of these dreams for what the project could be so it's really amazing to see what Mary and Lauren have done with it in the last two years and I might give them a lot of props for taking sort of a seed of an idea and creating this um, amazing service that is really groundbreaking in this field um, so I'm going to talk a little bit more theoretically because I'm sort of the writer on the panel um, but I am also a doula I got into doula work in college. I've always been kind of obsessed with women's health and, you know, was the person at the at the sleepover party who would be like staring at the like, um, you know, book about health and like t answering everyone's questions about women's health. Um, that's always sort of been my perspective and for a while I wanted to be a doctor and then I took organic chemistry and that sort of went, <laughs> crashed and burned, you know. Um, and then I took an anthropology class, um, actually at Bryn Mawr, I went to Swarthmore, but it was like a sister school. I took this anthropology reproduction class, like my sophomore year of college. And we saw this documentary called um, uh, Born in the USA. And it was um, a chronicle of like three different birthing environments. It was There was like a hippie home birth midwife in Seattle. There was actually a um, midwife um, a birth center birth at a hospital in the Bronx that I don't know if it still exists, but it was like a birth center across the street from a hospital in the Bronx. Yes, Moritz, yes. Heights. Moritz Heights still exists. That's awesome. And um, a like typical sort of very technological birth with an OBGYN in a hospital. And it was like a 20-minute documentary, and I walked out of that class and was like, that just changed my life. Um, and there was just something about the setup of the way childbirth was, was being um, done in the United States that just appalled and horrified and kind of activated me um, in this, this really intense way. And so I, birth became like my obsession. Um, and I've never given birth and, and had not at that point. But just from a political perspective, it just seemed like this really concrete example of a way, of the way that this procedure or this process um, had been completely convoluted and sort of um, 
technologized and medicalized and institutionalized in this way that was just very obviously to me not serving mothers or um, children or the you know the children that they were giving birth to. So. Um, I, my thesis actually sounds a little bit like um, the title of Lucy's thesis from college and um, sort of did all that academic work. But in the process of that, found a midwife um, who uh, was, is still practicing in Boston. And she's like, you know, you should become, because I was like, I want to be a midwife. This is it. I'm done, you know. Um, and she's like, well, you should become a doula. It's a really great way to kind of get in to birth before you become a midwife. And so um, I spent a semester in Ecuador when I was in college. Um, at a public hospital. They thought I was like a medical student, um, but I was really, <laughs> this is like the only way I could get in. And they thought I was like observing there um, because as a medical student, but I ended up being like an, an ad hoc doula in this public hospital. I mean, we could have a whole another conversation about maternity care abroad, but this was a pretty horrific public hospital in Ecuador. Um, maternity care is free there, but the only people who use free maternity care are the people who can't afford private maternity care. And so um, these women are giving birth in a big room with no support on like, you know, um, each, each person on their own cot. But anyway, so I sort of became like an unofficial doula because I was just kind of standing around um, and I started, you know, holding hands and talking to women. And, um, and so that was sort of my first introduction into being with women during childbirth. And then I came back to the United States. I did a doula, a donor training with, um, with Dona, and then I did a summer of doula work in a public hospital in North Carolina. Um, and, and that was sort of like the, the, my work in the doula world. And, you know, I'm, La I'm Latina. My background is Cuban. My parents are both Cuban immigrants. And a lot of what struck me about being a doula in that public hospital in North Carolina was um, the differences in the experiences of the women who are non-English-speaking Latina immigrants versus, like, the white women who would come in. So I, that, that program, you sort of just worked with whoever was giving birth who wanted a doula. And so I worked with a, a lot of different women. But I had a couple of experiences that were, like, I could contrast, you know, the experiences that these Latina immigrants had um, with the hospital staff um, and the experiences that the women who were able to speak to them, who spoke English, who had health insurance. So the disparities that um, Aisha mentioned are really, really stark, especially even just on the level of what kind of care you receive. Um, so I, I, um, I ended up kind of moving into professional reproductive justice work, which is, you know, this movement we've been talking about. And I worked with the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health um, when I left college and, and was still a doula, but wasn't practicing actively. Um, and part of what kind of pushed me away a little bit from the doula world was coming out. Um, you know, I came out as queer sort of my, like, last two years of college and, and started to question, like, well, how does this fit in with this, like, doula world, the midwife, the midwifery thing? I didn't really know what the connections were. And so I moved sort of back to the reproductive justice movement and, um, and did a lot of work in that, in that field with the Latina Institute. And while birth was sort of, like, kind of in the conversation, and we work a lot on like healthy teen pregnancies and things like that. Um, there wasn't there wasn't that focus on like changing the culture of childbirth that you see in like really hardcore midwifery and doula circles. Um, so I wanted to bring that into my work, but I wasn't sure how. And in 2007, I went to this conference hosted by the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, which is an amazing organization based in New York City. And Lynn Paltrow, who's the head, is like a, a visionary in this world. And she wanted to bring together, you know, abortion activists, people doing reproductive justice and rights work, with the doulas and the midwives who are trying to change the culture of birth in the United States. And um, that sounded awesome to me, right? It brought together my two, my two greatest, you know, my two big interests. And when I was preparing to, to do, like, a workshop at that conference, I did a workshop around, like, Latin immigrants and birth. Um, Lynn said to me, she's like, you know, Miriam, it's really weird that you're a doula and you work in a reproductive rights organization that you do abortion work. And I was like what are you talking about? Like, why is that strange? Um, and she's like, you know, there's a lot of, of tension between these two communities. Like, there's a lot of people in the birth world who don't, who are not pro-choice. And, 
you know, it wasn't until Lynn asked me that question that I really understood that there was this big divide. And I'd been going to midwifery conferences and doing all this work, and no one ever talked about abortion. And so I just assumed that they were all pro-choice like I was, you know, but um, very naively. Um, and so Lynn really, like, brought that out in me and, and really pointed, pointed out that there's a contradiction there if you look at the way the two movements work. And so um, that was what really got me um, to start the blog that I write now called Radical Doula. And so I was at this conference with, like, midwifery people and birth people and, like, anti-choice midwives and, you know, women who'd been forced to have a C-section by law enforcement but were very, very anti-choice and sort of watching this conversation try to happen, which was fascinating. Um, and I started to sort of think about myself um, as, like, a radical doula. I don't really know, like, where the, the phrase sort of came from, but I started to kind of use that as a way to identify, to explain, like, okay, you know, I'm a doula, but I'm also pro-choice, I'm also Latina, I'm also, you know, I do this work as activism, not as business, which is a lot of what you see um, in the doula community. Um, you know, I'm also queer, like all these different sort of pieces of my politics that I bring to doula work um, that are sort of unusual. And so after that conference, I started this blog, Radical Doula, and that was three years ago, like, and a week um, now that, uh, that I started that blog. And so it was really just like I wanted to find a place where I could talk about politics from my perspective, where I could talk about why it made a lot of sense to me to be pro-choice and to be a doula um, and to, to kind of respond to the, the folks that didn't understand that and why those two things were connected. And, you know, it's been kind of an amazing three years in that process. I'm not actively working as a doula right now, um, mostly for scheduling reasons, and I've done some volunteering in a clinic doing prenatal, prenatal care, helping a midwife do prenatal care for Latina immigrants. So I'm still sort of trying to stay in the service world, but not actively practicing as a doula. But being somebody who's sort of been like watching this movement grow over the last three years, um, it's becoming very popular, like doula work, I think. Like I know a lot of young women like us who, you know, um, like the three of us, I don't know about Aisha, but are not parents and haven't given birth, right? Um, it's like, why do we care so much about this birth thing, you know? Um, it's a little bit strange, but I, I feel like it's, it's really tapping into something that young women or young people are looking for around a, a new way to be an activist, right? That being an activist isn't just about marching on the streets or, um, you know, sending letters to your congressperson, but it's actually about like a one-to-one, -one, like, physical connection that you can have with someone and like I can have a very small but important role in helping you to experience this thing better um, helping you to advocate for yourself and and what you want in your you know in your birth or your abortion or your adoption or whatever so um, I feel like it's getting more popular I, I don't have any like statistics on that right but I feel like um, well, we know a lot of doulas now yeah like we yeah I mean it also is sort of self self-serving but um and you know, and it, and it, it makes sense in some ways because the the birth situation in this country is deteriorating. I mean, it's like, I, I keep waiting for that time when we like hit bottom and then start moving back up. Like just recently, there was a report from California that's that showed that the maternal mortality rate in California has doubled in the last 10 years. So twice as many women in California are dying during childbirth than 10 years ago. And what's interesting about this, and Aisha, I wonder what you think about this. Um, the women who are, who are dying more now than they did 10 years ago are not the women that we expect, right, who are, you know, low-income, African-American, Latina, the women who have, traditionally have, you know, not-so-great outcomes. Um, it's actually the white middle-class women who are dying more in California now than 10 years ago. And the people, this was sort of running around the, um, this was running around the, the internet, but um, people were saying it's actually safer now to give birth in Bosnia than in California, um, based on the, just based on the maternal mortality rate. And so the other thing that's doubled in the last 10 years um, in California is the C-section rate, right? So a lot of the work that we do is about combating um, the rise in C-sections. And there's hospitals, there's a hospital in, in um, the Miami, Florida area that has a 90% C-section rate. So it's like, 
it's, it's the, the statistics across the board are one in three women give birth by C-section now, but that's average, right? So some hospitals, and you're talking about hospitals, with 50%. So we're seeing the, the birth situation just based on maternal and, um, and infant mortality um, deteriorating really, really rapidly. And people will say it's because there's too many obese moms or because people's health care, um, health situations is bad, but, you know, I think it's, it's pretty clear that it has a lot to do with interventions, too. Um, so that's a lot of what I talk about at Radical Doula is just, you know, these basic things about, about the state of birth. Um, but it's also kind of issues that don't get covered on the rest of the midwifery and doula blogs, things like um, talking about the, shack the practice of shackling mothers who are incarcerated. So it's pretty common practice around the, the U.S. that women who are in prison when they give birth are shackled to their beds in the hospitals when they, when they are in labor. Um, and it's pretty horrific that this exists, um, and most people are pretty against it. It's one of those things that doesn't get a lot of opponents um, luckily, but it's also just like a pretty, a pretty inhumane practice. So that I read a lot about that, and that's becoming a more popular issue to work on, which is great. Um, and then also just more things about the the politics of being doulas, both doing it as volunteer work. I have like a resource page where it's it's all um, resource, all a list of trying to list all the programs that are volunteer doula programs around the country, so that people have somewhere to go when they want to do volunteer <laughs> doula work. Um, but also, there's a lot of politics around like. Um, whether or not you want to become a certified doula, um, whether, you know, you want to train with one of the big organizations, like there's a lot of conversation there too. So, you know, just some of the highlights of, of being, of kind of running the site for three years and, um, and, and doing this, this work online, you know, I've been able to, to really connect um, with a lot of other, you know, quote, radical doulas around the country. And that's been really amazing, just getting emails from folks who are like, you know, I'm a doula, you know, I'm queer, I live in, you know, I don't know some rural town in Minnesota and like none of the doulas here get me like I, I don't share politics with people I'm pro-choice and I can't talk about it you know this is um, but you know I found your site and I see that there's other doulas out there who do this too um, that's been really amazing and I've started this radical doula profile series and if any of you identify as a radical doula you should email me I want to have you on my site so just sort of trying to, to, to bring together this community of folks who are doing similar work I mean have similar politics as doulas and then the last part that's been kind of fun has been um, Sometimes people will email me and be like, I'm looking for this kind of doula, and I can't find it. So the first time this happened to me, this woman emailed me, and she said, you know, I've been turned down by three different doulas. She's like, the first doula turned me down because I'm serving as a surrogate for, my, um, for a gay couple, two gay men, and she didn't like that, so she turned me down. The second doula turned me down because I told her that I wasn't sure if I wanted to have an epidural or not, and she wouldn't work with me if I had an epidural. So... Um, Another doula down. <laughs> I know, this is pretty like worst case scenario. The third doula turned her down because she got pregnant as a surrogate with twins and then decided to selectively reduce. So um, either because of the, I think because the couple that she was parenting for only wanted one child. So um, one of the two sort of fetuses. Um, so she had an abortion and to, so she was only carrying one fetus to term. So the third doula turned her down because of that. So she was like, help me, like, I need a doula. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, perfect. So I, like, put out a call for radical doulas. And this was, like, very early on in the site and just sort of circulated this call with her story about trying to find her help or find a doula who, whose politics kind of fat, fit with hers because most doulas on their websites don't, you know, don't lay out their politics necessarily except about birth. So, um, and that's pretty hard to get turned down by three people. So she eventually found a doula um, and, it, you know, was, she had a great birth experience and that was really nice. So... Things like that. The other story I wanted to share was that a woman contacted me because she wanted to find a doula who was cool with her experimenting with sex toys during her birth. And I don't know how many people have seen the orgasmic birth documentary, right? <laughs> but it's becoming this new thing about trying to reconnect with like the erotic nature of birth. And so she emailed me about that. And I can understand why she would have trouble emailing a bunch of doulas being like, how do you feel about this? So 
Um, so I posted that on my site and, and connected her with someone. So just getting to kind of play that middle person of, of trying to help people find doulas who support their work. So, um, so I'll, end, I'll end there. Also, um, if you Google doula, Miriam's site is right after Wikipedia oh. and donut. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much oh, to all of you um, for sharing um, a bit about your work. Um, I don't know if you have questions for each other um, that, that have come up in the conversation. Um, uh, uh, something that, that struck me that I thought um, maybe you'd want to go into a little more, all of you, is just, Mary, what you said about um, helping different communities kind of create models for doula care that are on their own terms. And Aisha, you kind of talked about the work that you do and, and how um, the mothers that you work with don't really fit into this model of the way we usually think of, of doula care, at least the way that, um, that DONA, which is one of the biggest certifying organizations, um, does doula care. So, um, you know, something I wonder about is how people actually can um, make this work a reality in their communities and like what advice you would give to people who, who are interested in making that happen. Well, I, so I liked what Miriam said about, you know, this is a new way of being an activist, and that was sort of what drew me to the work, was that it's direct service which works with social change, which is pretty rare. Usually, you know, like the social work <coughs> model is sort of isolated. I'm going to school for social work next year, so I can say this, but it's very isolated from social change in a lot of ways. I think, you know, like younger generations are trying to change that, but like the doula model is just like this super unique service that that can be this powerful agent for change, like working within a system and working directly with people. Um, and I think another thing that really draws people to this is the volunteerism. Like there's something like really awesome about it and I think that's where you can sustain this project in different communities. Like sure, we would love to pay our doulas and I think like that could be a possibility someday to at least like stipend them. We have a few of our doulas here and they're probably like, oh really? <laughs> um, but you know, there's no lack of people like emailing us every day around the country, every, every day like in New York saying, I wanna be part of this project. And so I think that there is like definitely a sustainable um, aspect to doing volunteer work. We ask our doulas to volunteer twice a month. Um, two shifts a month, it's about 10 hours a month. Um, and so for all the people out there that say, you know, you have to have your C3, which we're getting, but that's another story, but <laughs> you don't, you really don't. And um, it's, it's something that if you create like a broad enough community of support and a national community of support, then you can help each other um, get things going. Um, like right now we're writing, our doctors and our counselors at our clinic are writing letters of support to all of the different projects around the country. We're writing letter of support we're offering to talk to clinics for them. And so it's, it's building like strong support systems to make things sustainable that don't necessarily include like private foundations or, you know, like Planned Parenthood. <coughs> yeah, on that note, that's part of the reason why we decided to kind of do away with the budding affiliate model that we were thinking of is because we don't want to, like we're not interested in this being ours and only mm -hmm. ours. We don't want our little flowers that we have as our like emblem to own everybody, you know, we want to make sure that this is accessible. Hi, I'm interested in your relationship with the medical providers during a birth. Do you have to come to some kind of an agreement ahead of time so that if something goes 
wrong and it turns into a surgical procedure or something like that, that you get sort of hustled from the room? Or, or are you allowed to stay at the head with the patient while maybe it's turning into a surgical case? It, it entirely, I mean, I think everybody who's a doula can sort of speak to that one a little bit in various ways. Um, it largely, thank you. It largely depends on, um, first of all, how well you know the provider. Now, if you've been in the, du the doula community in a given place for a while, chances are you see the same faces. Um, it also depends on how you present yourself, I think. Um, and I mean, I welcome other comments from other doulas in the room to kind of speak up about this. But as far as, I mean, surgical procedures, to me, I leave it up to the client. If I am the doula and I'm the only one she has in the room or the only one she feels comfortable having with her during her surgery because she's afraid that her mom will freak out, then yeah, I'll go with her. But depending on the, um, depending on the client, you know, if they're only going to allow one person in the room and she has her mom and her partner, I'm definitely not going to take anything away that would make her feel most comfortable. I'll go get her family some Gatorade or whatever, you know, and, you know, that's sort of how you handle it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's exceptions, but I, I find from what most people say in my own experiences, providers are, are pretty unfriendly usually. Um, and I mean, providers are pretty unfriendly to, and, and talking specifically about OBGYNs, are pretty unfriendly to patients who even try to, to demand too much, right? Like, and sometimes this happens with the nursing staff too, that, that they see patients who are like, I want this, I want that, I, they're going to be a trouble, you know, they're going to be a problem patient. Um, they're going to give me a lot of hassle, like, oh, those natural birth women, like, they always end up getting epidurals and C-sections, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of cynicism, and so providers um, often see doulas as, um, you know, invaders, as people who are trying to step on their toes and tell them what to do and get in the way, and I'm sure there's, you know, bad doulas, just like there's great OBGYNs, but... Um, <laughs> but there's just, it's just this, like, it's just, I think it's, it's this culture of, of medical care that is the easy, the, the best case scenario is a woman who is, you know, half numb, in bed, not moving, not asking for anything, kind of doing things on your schedule. Um, that works best for the system that we have set up in the hospitals. And so doulas don't really fit very well into that. And I found, even in, I was in a hospital-based doula program, so the, the doula program was run by a midwife who was actually a nurse on the, the labor and delivery ward, and the, the doctor's, like, did not like the doulas at all. Even some of the midwives didn't like the doulas, you know, and um, and particularly it was interesting for me because I was working with, you know, Spanish-speaking women, and I was Spanish-speaking, and these doctors, um, some of them were, some of them weren't, but so um, getting to hear all the things they were saying about this patient but not speaking to her about it and trying to sort of advocate in that role, you know, there's a lot of, like, a lot of nastiness that happens. Um, and so in that, I was in a birth like that with a Latina woman where it turned into a C-section, and, um, and he wouldn't let the partner go with him, with her, he wouldn't let me go with her, and his the 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 resident's argument was like very sort of patronizing. It was like you can't handle this, like you can't handle a C-section, like this is this is scary and dangerous. And I was like, well, if scary and dangerous, like I think she could use somebody there with her who a speaks her language and b is like supporting her, you know. But they were like, no, 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 like you know, you might freak out or something. So um, they're they're I feel like a lot of them their their focus is not what the patients want; it's what makes most sense for them, but. I'm a little bit cynical. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm a doula, and I, it's like, you know, I, I'm hearing all of you guys, and, you know, we come into the work because we feel like there is some sort of a calling. There's something that makes sense about making that transition into life easier for people. And, you know, I'm all about birth choice. You know, it's funny. I, I've never considered what you're saying about, you know, most doulas being, you know, pro-life or 
Not so, most, but a lot. Yeah. Okay, so, but um, I think the thing that we run into is that we have this incredible notion of just wanting to fill that gap, that missing link that we don't have in our healthcare. You know, I don't serve the communities that you guys serve as much because I need to sustain my life and I need to be paid and all of that. However, there are women who are in all different kinds of communities who have had abuse as, a, as children, physical, sexual, whatever it is, and there are things that come up for these people. So when they go in and check in with their OBGYN or their midwife or whatever, even with some midwives, you know, they're sort of rushed in and rushed out and there's not that person who's there for continuity, a trusting, you know, and, and not to replace a, a husband or a partner or whatever it may be, like somebody who's there as a quiet, you know, solace sometimes to find the words, to help get through. I mean, the one thing that exists that I really focus on is understanding where the fear comes in. Because it doesn't matter what community you're a part of, birth sometimes can stop. And it, whether the fear is from something in the past or thinking about actually how you're going to rear this child and, and pay for it and whatever it is. Anyway, I'm taking a long approach just to say, like, it's amazing the work you guys are doing. And it's, it's fantastic. And I'm listening to you now. And it's, it's really, um, you have these moments as a doula where it's incredibly heartening, where you really walk out of a birth and you feel like, you know that your presence was important there, but then there's the disheartening parts where doctors don't want to deal with you. You're in the way. It's a lit we're in a lit litigious society, and that's where it comes from. So you know, we all just have to kind of remain realistic. It's it's tough. You guys are doing great work. It's incredible, really. Thank you. Thank you. I do talk a lot about why I'm not certified, and actually the main reason, besides sort of feeling a little bit weird about the professionalization of doulas, um, none of us are certified, none of us yeah, are no. certified um, <laughs> is that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I was, so I, my, most of my doula work was in this volunteer situation in a hospital where I was walking into rooms where women were in labor, mid-labor, and saying, hey, do you want a doula, and then hanging out with them, um, which is not the most ideal situation for doulas at all, because you don't know the p patients or the clients or women ahead of time, but, um, and I just felt uncomfortable after volunteering my time with these, these people, then asking them to fill out a bunch of paperwork, and you know, I also didn't feel comfortable asking, you know, women who um, didn't speak English to fill out paperwork. I didn't feel comfortable asking nurses and doctors who were not really, like, you know, my advocates to fill out paperwork. And so um, that's why I didn't do it. For the, the, mainly, for the, the main reason I didn't do it was that, just that I was working in birth environments where I just felt like it wasn't my role to ask them to do that on my behalf. And I know people who have done it in volunteer situations. Um, it hasn't hurt me, quote unquote, because I haven't, um, the only doula work that I've tried to do since then has been in volunteer programs where they don't care about certification. I think certification, some programs care, um, but mostly I think it helps for the professionalization of it, that if you want it as a business, not that having it as a business is a negative thing, you know, I think it's a, it's a service just like any other, um, but it, it helps you to look more professional, and so people can say, oh, you're certified by this organization, and now there's also issues around health, um, health insurance reimbursements, and I'm still trying to figure out if it matters if you're certified or not. It doesn't seem like it does, but that's, I think, the direction that Dona, like, wants to take it, it, you know? I know. Yeah. I, I'm not certified for the exact reasons that Miriam mentioned, and I'm, I'm trying to get certified, you know, just because I think it's a good career move. 
Um, but it but it is. It's kind of a ridiculous task. And my last birth, um, I tracked down the nurse, and I was like, yes, because that's always like a hard part. <laughs> Um, and my client was like all about it. And then the doctor, I'm like, I, he's gone. Yeah. There it goes. <laughs> and I, I guess I could like fax him my sheet and hope he fills it out or something, but I'm kind of like, eh. I would also like to point out that um, all of the original doulas and the original doula studies about, you know, everything that gets quoted 50%. Right, right. It was all, Penny Simpkin led a group of, um, led a group of, I guess, her crew that she trained who basically had, you know, a basic doula training who had nowhere, nothing near certification. And for a lot of them, that was their first time ever attending a birth. And even then, right, 50% less requests for epidurals, you know, whatever, 20% fewer C-sections or, you know, whatever, Dona quotes about doulas. But I think that that's really significant, um, that there's something to be said about just having the presence there, right? of having somebody who is compassionate, who's there for, for you during this really intense physical moment, you know? And I, I, I'm always blown away by the fact that it's like, you know, when I learned that the original doulas were basically just like fresh out of their training with no such thing as certification, that told me a lot. Not that it's bad to get certified. It's probably a wise career move that I didn't make, but it's something to keep in your back pocket as some food for thought. One of the original dual studies was just women sitting in a room with women. And mm -hmm. this is the Guatemala study. They were literally just sitting there in the corner. Um, and even just their presence, not even talking, just sitting there had an impact. So, Yeah. And I haven't um, gotten certified through Dona. I mean, part of my questioning around the whole process is, is Dona the organization that I would want to be certified through? There are other organizations. There is um, ICTC, which is International Center for Traditional Childbearing, which um, it's open to everyone, but they specifically focus on issues within communities of color, and they have a, their training is different. It's called a full circle doula training. They talk about postpartum a lot in a way that Dona separates the postpartum experience from you know postpartum doula work money. from the labor and birth work, um, <clears throat> and also having just speaking to a few things that have been said. Um, so. I have a child, I have a 13 month old, and at a home birth with a midwife and a doula and my husband and my sister-in-law and my cat. Um, <laughs> and it was great. Um, and just seeing, and it was 36 hours. And just thinking about the difference between my own experience and what would have happened had I gone into some of the hospitals that I go into with the young woman that I work with, it sickens me. <laughs> because I've seen, I think speaking to the, the surgical question, um, it's not even so much, aside from the issue of do they allow people in the room, is what happens to them afterwards? You know, if you, the nurses and the doctors sometimes are like, oh, this young woman, you know, she keeps complaining, she keeps complaining. They put her in a room at the end of the hall so they can't hear her and don't respond to her. You know, there's, there was a situation with a young woman, they thought she was complaining too much. They put her down the hall. Um, she said she was itchy, They're like, you're, you're, you're just being a baby, stop complaining. She came back after they discharged her with a major infection because they just wouldn't pay basic attention to her needs and you know really take care of this person that they were charged with taking care of. So I think <laughs> some of the, the interesting thing about the California study where like, who is it, who is it who's dying now? Who are the people really suffering? I think it really is all women because of 
just the level of disregard and disrespect that happens to women during the process of being a pregnant person and the process of giving birth. Um, and I will also say that being pregnant may be more pro-choice than anything. <laughs> because if you don't want to be pregnant, the experience is, you know, it can be really, it was great, I loved being pregnant, can't wait to do it again. But the, <laughs> the experience of that and the way that you're treated by the rest of the world through that experience is really, it can be really hard. It's very, people are very disempowering. Um, so I don't understand, I mean, I guess I get it, doulas who are not pro-choice, um, but I, I have a hard time <laughs> dealing dealing with that. It's a lot of Christian, a Christian like yeah. doula. Yeah. My name is Jess, I work uh, with Childbirth Connection and we work to promote evidence-based maternity care. And my question is sort of a meta question about organizing around birth care. Um, and that's, we have, this, we have this one challenge to conceptualize reproductive rights and reproductive health along the whole continuum of a woman's reproductive choices. But the other challenge for us is um, mobilizing support among, mo mobilizing grassroots support among women through the whole continuum of their life. So we often see that um, we have a lot of sort of activist energy around the episode of childbirth and pregnancy that sort of wanes when other issues come to the front after you have your child and you, know, you move on with the rest of your life. So I wondered if any of the panelists could talk about mobilizing grassroots energy to improve birth care after the baby's born. That's an excellent question. But I, you know, I don't have a good answer to that except that that's not something that we do, but that's something that I'd love to have conversations about with whoever would want to do that. Well, I think I think what's interesting, it's interesting you bring up that issue, because for me, I always think about like the young people who haven't had kids yet. Um, how do you get them to care? Because people always start caring about birth when they're pregnant, and then they're like five years too late, right? Like your first month of pregnancy is, the is not when you should start reading all the books about like the politics of birth. Um, because you're going to scare yourself silly and then you're already going to be with a provider and you're sort of stuck, right? So, you know, don't watch the business of being born when you're already pregnant. Like, watch it way before you ever get pregnant um, because you really need to be informed about this um, when you can think about it more abstractly, I think. So, I mean, I think the doula sort of world is a, is a, pretty, good a pretty big success in terms of getting young people to care and, like, talking about birth, you know, bringing people into the birth politic through things like shackling of incarcerated pregnant women, like bringing people in on these things that they really like viscerally care about. Um, I've seen a lot of success around and I think a lot of the people that I, that like read my blog and that, you know, I know through this stuff don't have kids yet. Um, and I would think that once you had kids, it would be easier to like stay involved. But I, you know, I can see that having children to like, you're you know, tired. your activism, <laughs> your activism drops off, right? But most of the birth world is like mom. You know, a lot of those folks are like mom advocates. A lot of the midwifery advocates and stuff. So, um, I think we got to get people before they get pregnant. But well, speak yeah, I mean, I, I see places for that coming up in terms of just looking. At at advocacy around breastfeeding, advocacy around um, VBACs, which is vaginal birth after cesarean, which is a whole other issue. Like, people really need to be aware that it's not the first C-section that's the main issue. It's what you're trying to do when you have another child after that. Because there are so many doctors in hospitals who are also like, well, you've had one, that's it, that's it for the rest of your life. C-sections only. Um, and that doesn't have to be the case. So there, I mean, I see spaces for that kind of movement building um, throughout a spectrum for women. Um, and that's also a piece of the stuff that we talk about um, at BYMC and the work that I do because, you know, if a young woman comes in like, oh, I don't want any pain, I want a C-section, you know, my role is, 
hey, it's major abdominal surgery. You have 15 now, but what if you want another child after you've graduated from college and done whatever you want to do with starting your career and you're 30? <laughs> Not that, you know, delayed, delayed subsequent pregnancies is something that we also work around. So, like, you have to think farther out for yourself apart from just this, this initial moment right now. I think, I think it's starting with people, as Miriam said, like, long before, long before they're pregnant or, um, or while they're pregnant, just getting them access to more information and more education around what happens with subsequent pregnancies? What happens after you actually have this child? Because I will say for a lot of the young women also, there's a major disconnect between being pregnant and being a mother. Like, I think the experience of being pregnant and, okay, I'm gonna go to the hospital and give birth is like, I'm gonna go get a tooth extracted. Like there's not a lot of, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's not a lot of connection for a lot of women regardless of their age between this whole like, I've gotten ready and empowered or whatever you think you are for your birth process, afterwards you have, a, you have a child. There's a whole other set of issues that come along with that, um, that I think people miss that education piece around. How to mobilize them, <laughs> I think it's before, before they actually have the baby. I mean, speaking to you know, post-abortion, one thing that we try to sort of promote, or something we at least think about a lot, is that if you're taken care of um, in an intense reproductive health moment in your life and if you feel supported and if you feel in control of it, when you leave that experience, you're gonna be more likely to feel in control of future reproductive health choices and experiences. Um, so we've had, you know, again, it's sort of in the throes of it in the moment, but we've had very many of our clients we work with say, I wanna be a doula, this is awesome, like how do I do this? Um, so I think that we need to, you know, as a project, what we need to do to facilitate that is actually figure out how to facilitate it, mm -hmm. um, how to like reach out to these people who have said this to us, um, and it's, instead of waiting for them to reach out to us. Right, and that's the thing I think that is sort of interesting. On we had originally, um, when we had written our first mission statement, we were really emphasizing post-abortion care. We really thought we would check in like three months, six months, nine months. We had this really <laughs> cute plan set up. Um, and then, you know, we tried to contact folks afterwards or we would give our numbers, you know, we would pass our numbers off to them and sometimes they would call, but the vast majority of the time they would not. And then even on the counseling level, it's always hard because in the abortion realm of things, you know, a lot of the time we're asking them to return, by our call, we're asking them to return to a place that's very difficult for them. Um, but that said, you know, we have had a lot of people kind of come out of the woodwork and say, you know, interestingly enough via Facebook frequently, you know, thank you so much for being there, or, you know, I really, kind of reaching out to us in that way. So yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we're getting a little bit more of an internet presence, especially with some of our younger clients, is helpful, um, and as much as I hate to use social networking websites <laughs> as tools for youth mobilization, it's not such a bad way to do it. I think that probably the best thing to do for birth advocacy, right, is to get another celebrity like Ricky Lake to like have some big birth experience and do a documentary, 
because um, as much as like I have critiques about the business of being born, like that documentary got so many more people to think about birth than like mm-hmm. anything else because they remember Ricky Lake and they're like, whoa, you know, she's in a birth tub. So, you know, like a bathtub, a bathtub. Yeah. So the, like the Kardashian, right? Like the, the Kardashian, I don't follow these things, but people sent me an email being like, hey, I thought about you because the, you know, one of the Kardashians gave birth at home, like that kind of stuff, you know, like getting sort of the celebrity tip on, on birth, I think gets us more publicity than anything we probably would want to do in our activism. I remember being a kid in the 90s, they scared the hell out of you. They're like, you have to, you condoms, you know, HIV, everything. Like, it was really brought home to us, I think, if you agree with me or not. Um, In the 90s, like, sex ed was, it was there, it happened. And now it's not happening. It's something we talk about a lot um, in our program with the young women that we work with. And one thing I will say is a lot of young women drift into pregnancy. It's not necessarily a choice like hey I want to get pregnant or you know oh I'm pregnant I don't want to have it and that's part of the rest of our process is looking at how many young women come back to us with subsequent pregnancies and how many you know people ask do you have repeat do you have repeat pregnancies we might have repeat pregnancies but we don't always have repeat um, births and I think that has a lot to do with actually opening up more actual expectation for success and expectation for goal setting and expectation for like you will you will go forward and you will do this in your life you will go to college you will you know if that's not their home environment if no one in their house goes to work if no one has finished high school if no one has gone to college how are they and no one expects them to do that how are they to know like oh maybe I should maybe I should reconsider this and think about some of my other options out there in the world. What's interesting about the the connection between sex ed and birth is that oftentimes birth is used as a scare tactic, right? Mm -hmm. Like how many people saw that Miracle of Life video when they were in elementary school with like the scary vagina with the head coming? (laughs) Like it wasn't, it was about like scaring people. Like if you get pregnant, then you're going to have to do this scary ass thing, which is birth, right? (laughs) Which like, okay, probably doesn't work very well, but also kind of sucks for like the birth movement because then you're just making kids think that it's a horrible scary thing that they're going to be you know horrified about so I mean there's a lot about sex ed and like what needs to be part of it but I wonder how you could like have a sex ed that tries to to encourage people to you know make good choices about pregnancy but also doesn't make birth like the demon thing that they're scared of doing you know because we also get calls from people in the work that we do can you send someone to speak to our young people about teen we're not going to send a girl out to talk about herself in a way that disrespects her like, own humanity or something. Like, we're yeah. not going to send someone out to be the boogeyman and say, oh, my God, my life is horrible. It's such a mistake. No one's going to call their child a mistake. Like, our girl, they love their children. So I think the whole language and the expectation around teen pregnancy and teen motherhood is that there's this horrible, horrible, horrible thing that everyone needs to be scared the hell out of about. <laughs> So that it doesn't happen to them, and I think there's a big again disconnect between people who are you know doing sex ed and thinking that abstinence will prevent abstinence only education will prevent pregnancy. That's not how pregnancy happens. It's not about a conscious choice like today I will not use a condom, and you know <laughs> like that's just not how sex goes down for people in a lot of ways, especially if it's their you know some of their initial experiences. So I think some of just the way that educators think about how they're going to interact with young people um, 
needs to be revisited in order to address some of those things about like scaring <laughs> scaring people and how fear is not a useful tactic. You know, I have to, this is, um, this is such an interesting experience for me. I ended up chaperoning a trip to the Museum of Sex with a program for pregnant and parenting teens. And um, it, it is a terrible museum. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so it was like, it was down. Um, <laughs> so we're all kind of waddling around there, and right, keeping in mind pregnant and parenting teens, there was not a single teen in that program who was not pregnant and or parenting. Um, and these were people who were basically, were kicked out of home, or kind of like working with this program to figure something out for themselves. And they had a debriefing afterwards, and um, we were all sort of talking about their impressions of the museum, and one thing that came up, you know, was that it, it once, I don't remember how we got onto the topic of conversation, but it ended up coming out that among the 20 or so teens that were there, um, not a single one of them had ever had an orgasm, right? And not a single one of them even really knew how. Like, I ended up being there because I teach speculum self-exam workshops, and they were all sort of pulling me aside at one point or another saying, well, I mean, isn't that gross and weird? Like, and you know, asking me all these questions. And I'm like, I, I talk about cervixes some ridiculous percentage of my time. So I mean, <laughs> this is second, <laughs> thank you. This is second nature to me. So it was just, I was really struck by that. And to add to that, you know, a lot of the girls who were there were given the opportunity to do a sex ed program at their high school or middle school, but their parents refused to let them. You know, and to me that was very telling. And I think it kind of goes back to this demonization of female sexuality where not only are they taught not to make good, not, or rather they're not taught to make good decisions, right? it sort of leaves them up in the hands of like, you know, if their boyfriend doesn't want to use a condom because it feels better for him, a lot of the girls did not feel comfortable saying, no, you really need to do this. And a lot of them were telling me that they didn't really feel comfortable telling their boyfriend what they liked, or even what they liked because they were afraid to explore themselves. And to me that was, you know, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the lack of knowledge about one's own body, you know, and then moving on to the birth process, a lot of them didn't really have much of a plan about that either, but we're interested in making one if they had the guidance. Well, thank you so much again to all of you for being here. Thanks for a really great discussion.